interesting. Is that good? I don't really need it, so I don't want to blow your eardrums out. Hi, my name is Shelly. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, I'd like to thank the committee. Um, if I look somewhat familiar to some of you, I lived in Cincinnati 12 years ago. I moved away to back to Omaha. Um, some of my posse that I hung out with is back there. Um, so it's good to be here. There are people that look really familiar, but I can't remember where I know you from, what meeting, but I did go to meetings in northern Kentucky. So it's good to be here. Thank you, Sonia, and hanging out with Bob on that trip yesterday. And do you hear that hum? I think, like, beam me up, Scotty. Do you hear that? Okay, there's a hum every now. I'm ready to go now. Um, I'm going to share with you... Um, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And my prayer is always that there's going to be some kind of a difference because I still have a lot of those thoughts, those things that brought me here. Um, one example is uh, yesterday I got on the airplane, very small plane, and there was a young man sitting next to me, and he had a duffel bag, and he kept it on his, you know, kept it really close. And I was like, you know, there's been a lot about homegrown terrorists and everything, you know, so my mind already starts. And I thought, wow, I thought of the movie Airport, where, you know, they blew the hole in the plane and people got sucked out. Um, that's where I go. And he kept looking at his phone. And I'm thinking, when is the stewardess going to come by and tell him to put that bag under, you know? And I about said something like, did you know you're supposed to? And I thought, not your job. Not your job. He kept looking at his phone, and I thought, doesn't he know he's supposed to turn that off? That's during flight. You know, that could cause problems. And, you know, I, then I said a prayer. And I said, you know, what is your job? My job is to be fastened in my seatbelt and to get here. And at one point, he did get up and go to the bathroom, and I thought, well, if he's going to do something, it's at the back of the plane, I'll be okay. Um, but that's, I still, that's what I think. Precarious. Okay, so that's where I go. I'm on the short bus for Al-Anon. Um, <laughs> takes me a long time to learn things, and when I tell you about what I'm like today, you'll see why. Um, I am the oldest of six kids, and my dad was a policeman, and my mom stayed home and took care of us. I took my job as oldest very seriously, and um, I like to boss my little brothers and sisters around. Um, my youngest brother um, is autistic. And he was autistic before everybody else was. I mean, you know, <laughs> nobody knew anybody like my brother. I mean, he is severely, profoundly autistic. He, he doesn't talk. Um, and I knew, being the oldest, that um, there was some attention that needed to be paid to him, so I just picked up the slack. And um, he liked Wheaties. And I'm going to go back and say, um, I the only requirement for Al-Anon is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. And both of my grandfathers, well, one said he was in AA because alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease, but my grandmother had a problem with my grandfather's drinking. So um, I qualify for Al-Anon from birth. And um, my dad um, was raised with active alcoholism. And, uh, you know, so I lived with a... Can you hear me? Louder. Wow, that's a first. Okay. Um, so I, um, I lived with my dad with the effects of alcoholism from, my, from both my parents. So um, there needed to be some attention to my brother. And uh, so he's eating Wheaties three times a day, and the doctors, they didn't know hardly anything about autism then. This was like, you know, 45 years ago. 
And so they said, it's not good for him to eat Wheaties three times a day. He needs to eat regular food. And so my dad, meal times were horrible. And so my dad, he was the good one and did everything right. So he would be, you know, shoving the food in my brother's mouth and he'd be crying. And one day he got so upset that he got up from the table and he kicked our coffee table and it I mean, did a couple twirls in the air and it landed on the ground. And I thought, wow, he's mad. Um, and then my brother, who never could keep his mouth shut, the next day said, wasn't that cool when dad kicked the coffee table? And my dad said, I never did that. And my mom said, he never did that. And I thought, maybe it didn't happen. <laughs> and so, okay, this is fertile ground for what's coming up. You know, if, you, if it's not real and you don't like it, then it didn't happen. Um, when I was in, um, so my dad's a policeman. He worked nights, and I'm a daddy's girl. And it was time to go to kindergarten, and I didn't see any need to go. I was doing fine at home. Everything was, everything was good. Okay, I just don't want to holler, but I will. Um, so everything, so I remember being a little kid, having to be carried into the kindergarten class with my arms around my dad's neck saying, Daddy, please don't leave me. And he said, I will be waiting outside for you when you get done. Now, he taught me to do that, but I was always attracted to the guys that never were where they say they were going to be. So I was always out chasing them, but... There were a couple other things happened when I was small. When I was about seven years old, I saw a movie called The Touch of Spring, and this little boy's hair turned green. I didn't know why, but I thought if it happened to him, it could happen to me. So every morning I would get up and run to the mirror to see if I could had green hair, and I never did, but I never thought to ask my parents, is there a possibility I could have green hair? I just took that fear down, pushed it down until the next thing came along, and there was always something next that happened. Um, I remember uh, I was out playing with some kids, and I landed wrong on my shoulder, so I couldn't use my thumb. And uh, so I just used these two fingers. And my mom was busy with the other five kids. She never noticed that I wasn't using my thumb. And I don't know why I was afraid, but I was just afraid to tell her that I had pain and that my thumb didn't work. And so a couple months later, it went back into place, whatever happened. And I was like, well, if you ignore things long enough, they'll get better. Or something will happen. And so I, I just never said anything. And when I asked her, she says, why did you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I think I was afraid of what, what might happen. You know, they might take me to the doctor or something. Um, but, you know, life just went on. If I, I just had a lot of fears. And my fourth step was filled with fears. Fears of all kinds of things. We really focused on the fears. So um, when I was in high school, my boyfriend walked with a limp. Um, he was chased by the police through a cemetery and shattered his kneecap. And he was exciting. He was fun. However, he didn't have a car and he didn't have a driver's license. And it was apparent to me that when I was a senior in high school, he had no means to take me to homecoming. So I broke up with him and set my sights on someone that I knew had a driver's license and a car and a job. And so I got to go to my homecoming or my prom. So I had a lot of stuff going on there that I was manipulative, but I would have never owned up to that. You know, I did want to say that um, Palmer said that he is so grateful um, that Al-Anon saved his life. And I can't relate to that because Al-Anon saved your life because I was always about homicide. It was never like, I'm going to kill myself. It was like, no, I'm going to put you out of my misery and then just go on. It was just like, you know... 
what's important, what's behind me is not important. I'm just going forward. I'm a steamroller, and that's all there is to it. Um, so uh, when I graduated from high school, I didn't know how to go to college. And you don't want people to know that you don't know. So you do things that you know how to do. And so I got a job. And um, I joined the softball team. And the coach said, I'd like for you to meet my brother. Okay, so I meet um, my dad, mind you, always told me never uh, marry anybody you meet in a bar. So I went to a kegger. And there was a young man there who was chewing a glass because he had, he had seen that you could chew up a glass and swallow it and you wouldn't get hurt. And I was like standing there with my purse and my car keys getting ready to take this kid to the hospital. That's not the guy they had picked out for me. But when I met um, my then soon-to-be husband, it was just like, I don't know who took who hostage, but we saw each other every night for three months. And you know what happens after you see everybody, you know, see him every night for three months. He asks you to marry him, and you say yes. And um, people used to tease me that um, my dad um, checked the boys out that I dated. There weren't that many, trust me. But they said, I bet your dad checks them out through the police department. I said he wouldn't do that. Well, um, this young man had an altercation, and he had told me all about it. He told me that um, he had a few beers, and he went to go find his then-girlfriend, and he crashed his car, and somebody stopped to help him, and there was a fist fight, so he has a DUI and, like, assault and battery or something small like that. He was just... <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, he was just looking for his girlfriend, and I just explained it away. I was 19 years old. Um, it was very important that I, what would happen if you called it off? It would look like you didn't know what you were doing. And as much as a 19 or 20-year-old girl, you know, I loved him. And we were going to um, dances and movies and truck and tractor pulls and cage wrestling matches. <laughs> I'll let you guess which were his choices and which were mine. Um, you know, I was smoking at the time, and I always forgot to bring earplugs, so I'd tear the filters off my cigarettes at the truck and tractor poles because it got really loud. And it never occurred to me to say, I don't want to go. It's just like, you know, he's, he wants to take you places. And so, okay, we're going places. Um, I had an inkling that I shouldn't do this, but his mother told me that they were really worried about his drinking, and since, I, since he'd met me, he had, he had really improved. So what would he do without me? He would find out years later, and it didn't phase him that much, I don't think, but um, it would appear that I didn't know what I was doing. So... I went ahead with it, and my dad just kind of said, you want potato salad at your wedding? I mean, he saw the glazed look that I had already decided that this was what's going to happen. And so we got married, and alcoholism moved into our house, and I had no idea, no idea what I was dealing with. And I tried so many things. I was a hypochondriac. Um, I had time-life illness books where I would look up the illnesses and I'd say, well, I've got that, and, you know, I've got that. And I've lived through so many horrible diseases and never diagnosed with one. That was the first thing my sponsor asked me to get rid of. Will you throw those books away? No, not yet. I've, I've got to keep those books for a while. And then the Internet, you know, Google something. Strange mole. Yeah, I got that. Um, so um, I was, I think I was pretty creative when how my... Um, what I became obsessed about 
one of the things I became obsessed about was um, the cleanliness of my house. And so um, it was important that everything be clean at the same time. And, and he didn't drink that much at home. He drank a lot away. And so Friday night, I hated Friday nights because I never knew when he was coming home. He was going to stop for one. We both thought he was going to stop for one. But usually it was the next day when he came home. So I would think, well, I'll get my cleaning done on Friday night so we can spend the weekend together. Um, me not talking to him mostly. He was being punished. Um, so I would get busy and clean everything and, you know, get my laundry done and everything would be clean. And if I could figure it out how not to be naked and wash everything, I would have. Just couldn't figure out how to do that. Um, but, you know, it, it was just important, and I would vacuum myself out of the room, and then if I forgot something, I'd walk on the carpet because it was unsightly to have those footprints in that rug. And it just became commonplace, just things like that. I was horrible at work. I don't know how I didn't get fired. They talked to me a couple times. Um, people would call and ask me my job, and I would get mad and slam the phone down. And, you know, my boss would say, Shelly, you know, you need to want, oh, yeah, okay. But I was always so worried about him. You know, what was he doing? Who was he doing it with? When is he coming home? Um, I, too, would stand by my window. And, you know, we all know the sound of our alcoholics' cars when they're driving down the street and be like, maybe this next one. Or when he wanted a Harley and said, can I have a Harley? And I said no. And then one came driving down the street with him on it. I thought, I thought for sure I said no about that Harley. Um, you know, there's something amazing about the affected family member. You can love somebody to death, or you can plan their funeral. And so I would have fun planning his, planning his funeral, because I didn't want to be divorced. Widow sounded so much better. Um, you know, you get all the money, and people feel sorry for you, and you would be done, and you wouldn't have to live this life anymore. And I had pretty much become a prisoner in my own house. Nobody said, Shelly, you must stay home and never leave your house and wait for him. But that's what happened to me. I left the house to go to work to get groceries that he ate because by then I wasn't eating anything. I was smoking cigarettes and drinking water and staring out my window, hoping that he would come home. Um, so I didn't have any friends. No friends. They quit calling after a while. Um, one time I was going to show him what it was like to come home to an empty house. So I went, packed a bag and went somewhere. And I got home at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he got home at 10 o'clock in the morning. He didn't even know I'd been gone. And we would have these meaningful conversations, you know, these long talks, and we'd get everything hashed out. And then Friday would come, and it would start all over again. And I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. Everybody else had husbands that came home. Why couldn't my husband come home? What was I not doing? Was I not skinny enough? Was I not smart enough? You know, what was going on? And I had no idea it was alcoholism. So um, three years, we were married three years, and I had just had enough. It wasn't any different than any other Friday night. It was just that night I had just had enough. And so I decided, if he's not home by 6 o'clock, I'm leaving. He was never home by 6, but for some reason that night it was important that he be home at 6. And he wasn't. And so I went to my parents' house. And my parents were very worried about me. And now that I have girls that are 25 and almost 27, I can't imagine what their life was like. I wouldn't go over there, and if I did, it would be an in and out because I must be home. I must be home in case he came home. So uh, I just happened to go there, and they had a standing date with some other couples, and they happened to be home. Coincidence? My God doesn't 
my God is always ahead of me, planning in love for, you know, the next thing that I'm going to get myself into. And so I, um, I was talking to them about, you know, I didn't know what was wrong. And they said, do you think it's his drinking? And I said, I have no idea. None. No idea. And they said, well, we're going to take you over to your aunt and uncle. He was in, in AA and she was in Al-Anon. And we're going to have you talk to them. And so bright and early the next morning I went over there and they said, well, we don't know if he's alcoholic, but if you don't want to go out and pick another alcoholic, you better get some treatment. And I was like, there's nothing wrong with me. Now I am um, being stinky nasty to the cashiers at the store. I'm not doing my job. I'm vacuuming myself out of my rooms and I'm not eating, but there's nothing wrong with me and spending a lot of time with my Time Life books. Um, so uh, I said okay, and what I so what I came up with was um, okay. He we're either going to get it. He's either going to go to treatment, or we're going to I'm going to get a divorce. And I knew he wouldn't pick treatment because he didn't think he had a problem either. So I talked to him, and he said, "Yeah, let's go talk to the treatment center." Now, how would that look? You know, he wants to go to treatment, and I'm calling it quits. It would not look good, and it was all about me looking good and knowing what was, you know, what. I just, it was important that I look good. I put myself in situations where I look good. When you're hanging out with drunks, you look good. I don't care what you're doing. You look good. Um, so we went. I made the appointment. Um, she asked the question. I answered because he was not going to be truthful. And she said, uh, we don't know if he has a problem with alcohol, but we have a program for you. And I was, but there's nothing wrong with me. So we signed up, and my treatment program was not nearly long enough. Um, I had no idea what they were asking of me. None. I had no idea. None. I'd love to go there because the counselor was really mean to me. And she told me that I wasn't going to make it. And I said, make what? I mean, what are you asking me? And I remember one assignment was, to come up with something good that you could do for yourself every day. Now, it didn't dawn, so many things didn't dawn on me. I was going to clean my bathroom every day. And everybody in the room was just like, what? And I thought it was, I thought it was really good. So um, you're supposed to get a, do a fourth and fifth step to get out of treatment, but those steps did not apply to me. I hadn't done anything. So when my recovery was done, I found a AA or an Al-Anon meeting that had a concurrent AA meeting so that when he got done, we could go together. So I started Al-Anon, and it was a meeting that no longer exists in Omaha. Um, they had the same chairperson for three years. Should have been a clue. Um, but I did not feel like I was home. I did not have that feeling like I found my people when I walked in. It took me quite a while. So those of you that are new, just keep coming. Just keep coming. Because I had no intention of being here as long as I am. No intention. I figured, well, I wasn't gonna. I was gonna work like half of one. I was powerless, and then carry the message. That's all I, you know. I mean, I hadn't done anything. Didn't have to make amends. Didn't have to. I wasn't gonna do any of that. Um, so I was going to this meeting, and I was going to one meeting a week, making a lot of decisions on one meeting a week, and no sponsor. I didn't need one of those either. Um, I didn't care if they thought they were gonna boss me around, because nobody was gonna boss me around. I just didn't think I really had anything to share. I just 
I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was just kind of numb for a really long time. I just sat there, and the first thing that I learned in Al-Anon is keep your mouth shut. My mouth, I didn't jump in bed when I hear him come down the street. Mm -mm. I met him at the door. My mouth was attached to that doorknob. As soon as he'd come in, we'd have to have a talk about where he was, how much he drank, blah, blah, blah. And they told me, don't ask the question. He's not going to tell you the truth anyway. Don't ask the question. Okay. So in my infinite wisdom of one meeting a week and no sponsor, and he finished his treatment program, and I never did get my amends, by the way. Not that I'm sour about that, but I don't think I ever did get my amends. Um, in my infinite wisdom, I thought, if I wait for him to, um, oh, here was, here's what happened. Okay, so every night I would greet him at the door, and that year that he didn't drink was a good year. He was dependable. I could count on he was going to come home at a decent hour. And one Friday night, he was a little bit later than usual, and so I gave him the kiss-sniff test. We all know what that is. And I smelled alcohol. And I just, it felt like someone had hit me with a ball bat in the stomach. I thought, oh, my God, it's going to start all over again. It's going to get horrible. And then I heard myself tell me, you can be happy whether he's drinking or not. Okay, well, I'll be happy. And, you know, I wanted kids. And I had given him the best three years of my life, so I was not getting out of it then. We were gonna, we're into the bitter end. And so, in the, my infinite wisdom, um, uh, you know, being in recovery with no sponsor, we had our first daughter. And you know, I felt like I had really accomplished something. You know, here's this baby, and I got to stay home with her, and I didn't want her to be an only child, so we got to have another baby. And the funny thing is, is I always thought that he was the one in control of everything. But we lived where I wanted to live, and those girls were named by me. That was a tough pill to swallow when I did my fourth and fifth step. Um, so anyway, all of a sudden, I've got these two little girls. And I'm like, oh, my God, you need to get busy, because the only outcome for him is absence, insanity, or death. I'm still okay with the death part. Um, insanity, that would look horrible. And I didn't see the abstinence anywhere on the horizon, not interested in it. And so I started going to a lot of meetings. And, you know, it's like my friend says, give them a healthy parent. So I started going to a lot of Al-Anon meetings. Uh, I found a meeting um, where this woman was talking, talking about being found out. Somebody was going to find out who she really was, and I thought, oh, that's me. Somebody's going to find out who I really am, that this has been a sham for, I don't know how long it was. I've been Alan for a really long time. So I asked her, would you be my sponsor? I've been in for quite a while, so I won't be much trouble. Watch out for those. <laughs> um, so uh, the first thing she asked me is what step I was on, knowing full well that I hadn't done any of them because you could tell. And so we started working the steps. And I started getting better. And I looked around, and she gave me um, what I call the relationship prayer. It's not in any of our literature. It's just a prayer that she gave me. And she wanted me to start saying that with put my husband. It's God bless whoever. God bless me. Take our relationship and make it what you would have it be. So I started saying that. And within a very short period of time, it became very apparent to me that this marriage was over. 
we weren't fighting. We just had no communication whatsoever. I was busy raising the kids and going to Al-Anon, and he was off doing whatever it was he was doing. And so on our 12th wedding anniversary, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And so we split. And, you know, God had already sold our house, and we had put a down payment on other house, and I said, I'm not moving there. I'm moving to an apartment. And so we got a divorce. And I was young and in Al-Anon. And my sponsor would just tell me, be safe, because I'd be going to chip nights. You guys have chip nights here where the young alcoholics can get together with whoever, and it's a dance, and probably more than what it should have been. But, um, you know, it was recovery. And I was going to roundups, which I never did. And you people who are new, congratulations. There's no way you could have got me here in my first four or five years coming to a roundup. So congratulations. My hat is off to you. Um, so anyway, um, I went to, uh, you know, I'm going to a lot of meetings, and I have friends. I finally have friends. People know what's going on in my head. I think intuitively I was afraid to share what was going on in my head because they usually put people in straight jackets that have those thoughts, like I just shared, you know, like the poor kid that was just got off. He said, I got off work at 3 o'clock this morning. I'm very tired. And I thought, and I thought you are going to blow up the plane. Um, you know, that's just where I go. So... Um, I meet a young man at a meeting. Um, a friend of mine said, would you come here? My boyfriend speak. And so I'd been divorced for about a year and a half. And I met, I met this man, and he wanted to take me, he wanted to date me. And somebody, it was funny because it never occurred to me somebody wouldn't want me because I had kids, because I thought I was a catch, and it was just a matter of time before I found somebody. And this was one place that I went that I was not looking. I went because she had asked me to go. And this uh, young man wanted my phone number, and so I gave it to him, and we started a date. And I started saying that relationship prayer almost immediately because I trust what God tells me. God talks to me in very quiet, in my quiet. When it's that calm, quiet voice, that's God. When it's the hysterical, you got to do this right now, that's usually me. And so uh, John and I started dating, and... Um, I don't recommend this, but um, we had been both in recovery for 10 years when we met. Um, it, I don't think we acted like it, but we had been in recovery for 10 years. Um, he got a job offer to move to Milwaukee, and there was no way I was leaving. I loved my Al-Anon. My family lived there. There was no way I was leaving. And that small, quiet voice says, yeah, you are. And I talked to my sponsor about it. People were calling my sponsor and saying, why are you allowing this? Can't you talk to her? Can't you tell her what she's doing? And she says, have you met Shelly? Because um, I, you know, it was okay. She knew it would be okay. My parents, if my parents, one of my parents or my sponsor had said, this is crazy, I probably wouldn't have done it. But they both, all three of them love me enough to let me go. So on uh, December 22nd, uh, 1991, we went to court to get permission to, to move the kids um, out of the state. Um, we had Christmas on the 25th. We packed up a 24-foot truck on the 26th and 27th. We got married on December 28th. We drove to Milwaukee on December 29th. I was crying the whole way, mind you. And pulled up in front of this, um, what was it, townhouse, and unloaded everything ourselves. And my parents brought the kids up. A couple days later, and I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And I thought, you need to get to an Al-Anon meeting. 
So I went immediately, found an Al-Anon meeting, using a street map without the GPS. That was always one of my big fears is I was going to get lost and never get home again. Um, but I found the meeting. It stunk. Um, they all stunk because I wanted Omaha. It was the best Al-Anon ever. It was the only Al-Anon I knew, but I wanted, I wanted that. And I just kept going until people started recognizing me. And it got to be where the Al-Anon there was okay. And I started sponsoring people, and I helped start a meeting. And I, Milwaukee was my home away from home. And shortly, we were there for five years, and then my husband got a promotion to Cincinnati. And I thought, I, thought, I can do this. I've done it before. I'll know what to do. And I'm going to keep my mouth shut about how bad it stinks. And so I did keep my mouth shut, but I had a look, and my friends back there know it. Thin-lipped, arms crossed, just, you know, they weren't doing it right. And they just kept telling me, we're so glad you're here. Keep coming back. And so I did. I just kept coming. I just went to a lot of meetings. I would scream and cry on the way home a lot of times because I just wanted to belong, and I wanted to belong right now when I figured out that you have to keep going until somebody notices you're not there. I remember one night I was just really irritated by something that went on at the Tuesday night meeting, and I left right after because I thought I'm going to say something to somebody. And two people called me when I got home and said, are you okay? Because they noticed that I wasn't there. Because I am a meeting maker. I need a lot of meetings. That's just the way I am. There are some people that can get by on one, and if you can, my hat's off to you, but I cannot. I need a lot of meetings. I need to be reminded a lot about how I'm supposed to be acting appropriately. That's what Al-Anon has given me because I just feel something and then, you know, then you all get it, whatever that reaction is. And I act pretty normal most of the time now. Um, that, yeah, I try not to react, but, you know, sometimes my feelings get the better of me. I'm not perfect. That's when step 10 is handy. Um, so when I was in, uh, when I lived here, um, my husband and I, we lost sight of each other, and it was really bad. It was the most painful time in my life. And I was going to Al-Anon, and I was sponsoring people, and um, we separated. And, you know, the sponsor that I had when I lived here is here. And I was so, I couldn't breathe. I'd have to be reminded to breathe. And she said, come over to my house. And I just wanted to sit someplace and just talk normal. You know, and her niece was there, and her niece was running it. I just needed something normal. And these women just, they rallied around me, and they said, you're going to be okay. You know, life is going to be okay whether you're with him or not. And anybody that knows my husband and I, we are meant to be together. I could not believe this was happening. Scared a lot of people because they thought if it could happen to us, it could happen to them. So there was a lot of people that started taking a look at their relationships. Um, but what happened was we were separated, and his job, um, the company closed, and so I told everybody I'm moving back to Omaha. The only reason that I'm here is because of him. He's not here. I'm moving back to Omaha. Had a wonderful going-away party and got some wonderful red bedazzled shoes so that I could go back to Oz. Um, <laughs> and so I moved back to Omaha. And we did put that relationship back together, and it is what I always wanted. He was the partner I always wanted. Um, it, it took that breakup. And I must say that God is very powerful because I don't forgive easily. You hurt me, and everybody knew it, 
And I just kept saying the relationship prayer because I didn't know how God was going to, I didn't think he could. I didn't think he could put it back together. But he did, and we are very happy today. That's been 12, 13 years ago that that all happened. So Cincinnati has a very special place in my heart because this is where I truly felt that people were, you know, they just love me unconditionally. They're like, you're not sitting in your hall, in your house tonight. Come on, we're going for dinner. I want to go to dinner. You're going to dinner. <laughs> and so they really took care of me. So I go back to Omaha, and John and I do what we always do. He bought a house. We all moved in together. And, you know, it, it was, um, we both had to work at it. And I had to look at my part because, once again, I am the good one. He did it. I didn't do it. But I had a part in that. And that's one thing that's always been important to me and I'm willing to do is I'm willing to look at my part. I might need some time and I might need some help, but I'm always willing to look at my part. I mean, I always tell the women that I sponsor, if I haven't had to make amends to you yet, just wait. (laughs) You know, because if I love you, I need to stay objective. But if I love you... It can be dangerous for everybody. Um, At a meeting recently, someone said that her son said to her, do you have to love me so much? And it's like, yes. You know, that's why I come to Al-Anon, so that I can kind of put that buffer up between who I love and, because if I love you, it's, you're mine. You know, I, I don't want you to be in pain. I want to, okay, so we're back in Omaha now. And the, my home group, which is Sunday Benson, Sunday Night Benson, and We named it that because it's Sunday night and it's in Benson. Keep it simple. (laughs) If you're ever in Omaha, we'd love to have you. It's a big meeting. There's a lot of laughter. And the first night I went there when I got home, I thought, well, this stinks too. What'd they do to it while I was gone? The thing fell apart while I was gone. (laughs) And what it is is I got used to Al-Anon here. And so I just, you know, it's just like, okay, this is where I was. Um, So today... um, I worked for an accountant, and I love numbers, but people bring their numbers, and people are messy. And they either staple too much, or they tape too much, or they don't do anything, or they want a copy of their tax. Who doesn't hold on to their tax return? Don't show me a rate. Don't, don't, don't raise your hands. Um, but people will call and say, I need the last four years of my tax return, and I want to come back with, what the heck? You know, this is important stuff. But what I've learned to do, and this is what al has taught me, is I smile before I pick up the phone. I really do. Hi. (laughs) And it does change how I see things. Um, I went to a meeting, and someone said, uh, she was talking, and she says that she has a sticker by her phone that says, I am here to be of service. And I thought, well, that's stupid. But I went to work (laughs) because I am. And that is my job. If people don't have something, my job is to give it to them, if at all possible. So I have, you are here to be of service. And my sister came into our office one day and went around, and she saw that, and she put LOL by it. (laughs) Because she knows me. So um, I've been working here for like seven years, I think. And shortly after I started working there, it's a very small office, so we really have to depend on each other. And shortly after I started working there, this guy started working there. And hate is such a puny word for what I felt for him from the day he started. Um, He is messy. He hoards stuff. He's, oh, I could go on and on, but it's not going to do any of us any good. Um, 
And so I would keep this tally sheet about this guy, that he was, all the things that he did. And there were mornings when I wouldn't even acknowledge him in the morning. He would say good morning, and I would just ignore him because I didn't like him. And he was probably used to it. And then I found out his wife is mentally ill, so he was probably used to me being hot and cold and, you know. But um, I was praying about this because this is a very small office, and you just can't act that way. My sponsor is like, you need to greet him in the morning when he comes in. Okay? Good morning. And it was just a matter of time before he was going to do something that was going to irritate me. And so I would look for those things that irritated me. So this is years. So about three years ago, and I have people pray for me. Please pray for me so that I don't hate this person because it's disrupting my life. And it's making his, you know, it's not good. It's a small office. So one day I was out to lunch with somebody that I sponsor, and she said something about work. And I said, oh, you know, we started. And I said, um, one of the things that I found out that I had from reading a newspaper is a facial disfiguring disorder. It's rosacea. And I said, see, I knew I had something. And um, I think he has it. So I have this stuff that I use, and I said I could give it to him to use on his, but he doesn't deserve it. So I'm not going to give it to him. And she said, and this is what I love about people who know who I am, she goes, how old are you? And I said, <laughs> and I said, okay. So I thought, well, you know, so I put some in a little bottle, and the next day I marched in there, and I put it down, and I said, I think you have rosacea, and this might help. And I turned around and walked away, and I was thinking, well, I hope that makes somebody happy. And you know what happened? I hated him a little bit less that day. And I didn't want to beat him about his head and face with my giant stapler, because that's what I just kept thinking. I'm just, I just want to hit him. You know, he's not complying with what, you know, because his job rolls down to mine, and it's very difficult. And I'll tell you, it was really funny at my home group. Somebody said, I don't want to have to wait seven years like Shelly did to not hate her um, co-worker. Because everybody got tired of listening about that. I got tired of talking about it. But you know what? Today, because of the grace of God, I don't hate my co-worker anymore. I don't hate him. We even have, like, conversations. He says something, I say something, and then he usually turns around and walks away from me. And I'm okay with that. Um, um, I do want to talk real quick about my dad. Um, when I was little, you know, I was a daddy's girl, and I called him my policeman daddy. And he protected us. He protected the city of Omaha. Well, about eight years ago, he got cancer. And um, so, and he, and it happened really quick. And so, end of September, he was diagnosed. And so I thought, I want him to come stay with me. And I had the perfect house for it. Um, I only had one of my kids was gone, one was there. And so I did two things that Al-Anon has taught me. I checked with my husband first before I made the offer, which before that it would just be like, well, they're moving in, you know, get over it. Um, so I checked with him to see if that would be okay, and he said absolutely. And the second thing I did is I had a girlfriend who had gone through that with her mother, and I wanted to find out what that was going to be like, you know, having someone die in your home. And so she told me what it was going to be like, and so we moved him in. And it was exactly what she said. Um, my, both my parents moved into my, into my home, and one of my, and there's six kids, and so there was always somebody with my mom, 24/7. There was always somebody there, 
We bathed him. We fed him. We got to do all those things for him. And, um, you know, a couple things happened. The, um, my sisters have little kids, and so they were down in the basement shooting staples at each other and messing up the puzzle pieces, and the life pieces were in the whatever, the Monopoly pieces, and I would just get all bent out of shape because my basement was trashed, and I would call my sponsor and say, you know, you never guess what those kids are doing now, and she'd say, isn't it great that your sisters can come there and be with their dad? Put it in perspective, because my pettiness would have made that whole environment toxic for everybody because the puzzle pieces are I had to pick a few staples out of the carpet, you know? I mean, it just really wasn't a big deal. And so a couple things happened. The first one was um, I never saw my brothers as men. They were just my little brothers. And so they would pick my dad up, and they would carry him into the bathroom, and they'd all hop in the shower, and I'd hear this laughter, these men laughing. And I thought, my brothers are grown men. When did that happen? Um, you know, my brothers wanted to give me some money because, you know, we're, they're at my house, you know, the expense, you know, and it was really hard for me to take that, to take it from them. But my mom was like, you know, they want to help. And so on November 7th um, at 11 a.m., we all got to be there to, to tell my dad goodbye. And afterwards, nobody hated me because I just am a, I'm just stinky. I just want things my own way. I don't want things messed up. I just, you know, I'm self-centered and selfish. And nobody hated me. And we got to send him off, you know, in a manner that he deserved. Um, so I just had a really good thought. It's gone. Um, maybe it'll come back, maybe it won't. Um, my two daughters, I always um, thought I had which one pegged for Al-Anon and AA, and I got it totally mixed up. Um, my little one I thought for AA is more like me than I care to think, you know, has her little checklist out, and she's always doing everything. And the other one is a finance major, and it's like, I'll pay that later. I'll pay that later. I don't get on and look at their Facebook because it's just nasty and I, you know, it's just not worth looking. But um, neither one of them live within four and a half hours of me. And I think God, you know, they made choices. I raised them to be independent. And one lives four and a half hours away from me and one lives ten. And um, one of the things that I, had just, that I really struggled with and in Al-Anon and my sponsor really helped me is I was always... What I said, when I said it, you will march along. And, you know, I was in charge. And now to transition from that, I had to say the relationship prayer a lot, especially with my oldest, because I used every opportunity as a learning opportunity. You know, this person's living with this person. She would tell me, and I'd jump right on that about, you know, don't do that. Um, she's going to be 27. Hello. I mean, my days of teaching that are over, and God is helping us come together as women. That relationship is changing. And I just have to keep my mouth shut a lot. I don't ask a lot of questions, and she doesn't tell me a lot. And I want her to be able to confide in me. I do not want her to be scared. I do not want her to be scared to tell me something for fear that I'm going to come at her because that's what I've done in the past. And she's giving me little opportunities to change that relationship. And it's little bit at a time, it's changing. Um, I sponsor a lot of women, 
And um, one of the things I learned in my fifth, fourth and fifth step was I really didn't want to be bothered with people that were messy. If you had a lot of problems, I really didn't want to because we couldn't, fit, we couldn't fix them all, so why bother? Um, and so I was very, you know, uh, so um, I sponsor a lot of women, and their lives are messy. And um, I just pick up the phone. And one of the things that someone said to me was, you always call me back. And I always tell them, if you want me to call you back, please say so. If you're just calling and rambling on about something, I become disinterested in 20 seconds, so don't leave me a long message. But if you, need, if you want me to call you, please say, I need to talk to you. Call me back whenever you can. And I do that because I had that. I am not at their beck and call, but I am willing to walk with them. I am willing to get, let's get dirty. You know, I will walk with you, but I will not pull you. And so there are some people that I just see at meetings I never hear from. They'll say, Shelly's my sponsor. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> what step are we on? Um, but I am willing. And that was something that I was, you know, I didn't want to be bothered with that. It was just like too much trouble. And so I get some, you know, I get some pretty interesting people. And, um, you know, I just keep asking God for help. And I realize that I don't have to do this by myself. It isn't just me. When I pick, before I pick up any phone call for them, I'm a, I invite God into this relationship because I can't do it all by myself. Because then I think I need to know everything and I have to be perfect. And, you know, God, I, I just don't want it anymore. So um, it's so good to be here and get to see, meet new people. I met somebody, I had breakfast with somebody today. And there was a time when there was no way. I would just go sit in my room until it was time for me to talk, and then I would get on the, you know, be out of here. But Al-Anon has given me the tools to know that if I say, hey, my name's Shelly, and they say, my name's Susie, and that's all there is of the conversation, that's okay. I don't have to, because before I would tell everybody about everything, and nobody wanted, you know, it's like, not today, Shelly. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, he did this. And now I know what I like and what I don't. So I, am, uh, I go to a lot of meetings. I go to an open AA meeting every week. I think it's really important because then I know that they're not doing it to me. They're just doing what alcoholics do. And it's really important that I be reminded of that because I can take everything personally. And um, I was recently at, this, at my open AA meeting, and um, somebody said, oh, so-and-so's talking. And there were a bunch of alcoholics. I was only Al-Anon in this conversation. I said, well, God, I hope he gets sober before blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I don't want to hear his drunk log. And somebody said, Shelly, he's not talking to you. <laughs> and I never said it to them again. I might say it to someone else. But once again, you know, I think I know it all, and it's like, you know, okay, well, you know, you've been sober longer than you've been alive, so let's get into recovery. I don't know who they're talking to. I don't know who's getting what message, and it's not up to me to do it. All I can do is be in my seat and carry the message that I have, and I want to carry the message. I don't want to carry the, I don't want to carry, I don't want to spread the disease. I want to carry the message. I want to be somebody that somebody could come up to me after a meeting, although there was one gentleman, did I say this already, that he doesn't, um, he was talking to my sponsor and he says, I don't have enough recovery to talk to Shelly yet. <laughs> because I have a reputation of telling it like it is. And this one person, we were standing around one night and this person's always late, which is one of my big pet peeves. And um, we were talking about people being late. And she's like, oh, yeah. 
and I thought for a minute, and I said, um, do, you want to, do you want to hear what I think people are late? And she said no. <laughs> and I was going to tell her anyway. And I thought, no. She said no. So I said, okay. And I had to turn around and walk away because I still thought she needed to know. So what I hear a lot is I am not the bearer of truth and justice. I just get to take care of what's in my hula hoop. That's it. Everything in my hula hoop is mine. Everything else out there is yours. And it makes um, it makes life a lot easier. And people, we had a topic um, recently in our Al-Anon meeting, and it was like, why do you keep coming back? And somebody called on me, and I said, as a public service to all of you, I keep coming to Al-Anon. <laughs> Thank you.